Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. This special South by Southwest episode of Unconfirmed is brought to you by Appreciate. Founded by Ed Stevens, Appreciate is building the most valuable relationships on Earth. Today, Appreciate is recognizing an individual for their achievements in the crypto space. Who will be recognized today? Stay tuned to find out. This special South by Southwest episode of Unconfirmed is also brought to you by Quantstamp. Quantstamp is building the first smart contract security auditing protocol designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. Being developed by a team of PhDs with over 500 Google Scholar citations, they're about to finish Y Combinator's Winter 18 batch. To learn more or request an audit, visit quantstamp.com. My guest for today's special South by Southwest episode is Amber Baldet, the blockchain program lead at JP Morgan Chase and chair of the financial industry working group at the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. Welcome, Amber. Hi, thanks for having me. And thanks for letting me record in your hotel room. <laughs> Absolutely. So what are you here at South by Southwest for? Um, I was here doing a, a keynote presentation with Brian Bellendorf from the Hyperledger Foundation, and we were talking about what it's going to be like to do business at global scale on the blockchain someday. And so what did you guys say? Um, well, we tried to take it in kind of a, a rapid fire back and forth manner that was kind of dispelling a, some myths that people might have heard out there and talking about generally big concepts uh, in the space. So uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, level setting. What is a blockchain? What's a blockchain versus a distributed ledger? What are smart contracts just to get everyone up to speed? Um, and actually, just yeah. let's stop there. What is, so what is the difference between a blockchain and a distributed ledger? <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, well, this is you know, Brian and I were actually disagreeing a little bit at the time. But uh, I, my view uh, is that a blockchain is a specific type of a data structure and that uh, we can use it to transfer cryptographically unique assets and that generally as they're deployed in the public space, they tend to be um, censorship resistant and can support anonymous participants. When we talk about distributed ledgers, we're generally talking about information sharing amongst participants who know each other. And so you also don't necessarily need to use something like proof of work or mining. There's other algorithms that help you form consensus. And so we tend to find those within um, businesses that fully intend to follow existing legal and regulatory frameworks. And once you know other participants in the network, it really changes kind of how you how you transact, what trust looks like uh, in, in those networks. And it's a little bit more about mutualization of infrastructure than it is uh, about just anonymous censorship resistance transactions. 
And so what was the audience like? What were their questions? And yeah, how did the session go? Um, it went great. The, the room was packed. I was a little a uh, little scared that a lot of people at South by Southwest with so many cool talks out there to go hear about how, you know, AI is going to change the face of everything. Weren't going to want to come hear about boring business on the blockchain. <laughs> um, but yeah, the room was packed and there were great questions, lots of nodding heads. And I think we managed to cover a lot of topics, not just about, uh, you know, business on a, a known distributed ledger with known participants, you know, that can sound a little dry, but we got to talk about what the impacts are to privacy, what the impacts are when these things scale to the point where uh, you might have millions of participants in a permissioned ledger, and does it really just start to look like a public ledger? Impacts to cybersecurity. Uh, Yeah, we kind of covered the gamut of topics there. Great. So I also know that you flew in from the Ethereum Community Conference. What were some of the major things people there were talking about? Sure. So SCC was in Paris. Um, it was definitely a different crowd. I mean, you're talking about people there who are in the weeds of Ethereum development every day. Um, and so the, the conversations there were, were great. It was amazing. I think they had four concurrent tracks for three straight days. So a lot, a lot of topics and a lot of ground covered. Um, I wish I would have gotten to be there more days. Uh, I, I had to come here and I had just come from another, from a JP Morgan event. So um, it was kind of back to back for me. But uh, there were some great conversations about just getting a lot of people that are core uh, Ethereum thinkers or magicians, quote unquote, together and uh, making sure that there's paths towards collective governance and dispute resolution and, and getting people on the same page. Um, there were some conversations about what privacy is supposed to look like on a public ledger that were pretty interesting. Um, and then I gave uh, my talk on enterprise Ethereum and a little bit about Quorum, um, but really going the other direction where I spend a lot of time doing things like I did here at South by Southwest, where I explain both public blockchains, but also how the financial industry is thinking about the technology out to, to kind of lay people or like the the general public. In this case, I was kind of going the other direction and trying to explain how we're thinking through quote unquote enterprise blockchain and why that should even be a thing back to people who are deeply invested in the public Ethereum community. So So it's actually a new challenge. (laughs) Questions there. Yeah. Why should these enterprise blockchain exist? Like what what were you saying at the uh, ECC conference? Yeah, well, I, it really comes down to, um, I, I think that the distance between these communities isn't as far as people necessarily think that it is. And that the, the challenges that we have to deploying this technology or making it really work for, for regular people or work, you know, at, I hate the word at scale because scale is not defined, but for, to work globally, um, you know, they're, they're really the same between businesses and public blockchain. So challenges with privacy, challenges, uh, with confidentiality, not necessarily the same thing, challenges with scaling, challenges with governance of the network. It's the same problem set, but it's just that that businesses will approach the solutions differently than than um, public blockchain communities are. And so we can really learn from each other. If you're working in a, a public blockchain that's an, under a, a hostile environment every day and um, that's you end up with different uh, sorts of solutions to those challenges um, than you do if you're thinking that you're going to be running these things in an enterprise data center with a proper disaster recovery model and power 24 hours a day. Um, but ultimately, I think that if we're trying to create something that looks like an internet of value, that that 
you shouldn't have those communities be bifurcated. You need to have not just business to business kind of applications and transactions and not just consumer to consumer or peer to peer payments um, or, or applications, but we need to kind of bring these things together to create this kind of real marketplace that involves uh, everybody globally. And for that, we're, we need to do a lot more work at, on both low level protocol engineering collectively, which isn't just top-down imposed standards, but is thinking through what problems we're trying to solve and, and finding more kind of commonality than differences in how we try to solve them. Well, one thing in what you were describing, sort of this kind of intersection of the two areas, uh, it just made me wonder, like, what kinds of assets would trade between them? Because here we have a lot of banks saying, like, hey, don't touch Bitcoin and stuff like that. And so if you are imagining some world in which these different chains intersect, then what assets would, be, would they be trading in? Sure. I mean, when we say assets, I think it's easy to think of just kind of existing financial assets. But um, much like when if you think of the Internet of Information and you might send an, an email to uh, your bank or you might I mean, you might send an email to a non-bank, but just, you know, anywhere that you're kind of doing business. It's it's more um, the the information that you're transmitting is just standardized. So you could imagine a situation where you want to open your bank account, but your identity might be held um, or you might have information about your identity sourced from a variety of places around the world that's accessible through a public blockchain. Or you might be opening a mortgage and perhaps municipally publicly available records about the underlying land title. That is, that's publicly available information that might be on a public blockchain, but your mortgage might be constructed uh, from that. And hopefully that the information about your mortgage payments remains private. Um, if you were to take that mortgage and then it underlies some sort of securitized product down the line, you know, that probably doesn't trade in the retail market. So there's no reason for individuals to access it. But you might want to be able to trace the provenance uh, of the um, the health of that the underlying asset all the way back to the public chain. So I think that these hybrid networks of networks that will evolve will simply just be a pragmatic function of where information is best stored in the long term. Oh, I like that. In a way, that's sort of like a way of thinking of, oh, here's something we can do to prevent the next financial crisis where people don't know where the bad mortgages are or something like that. Absolutely. There's been a kind of a lot of discussion. Um, it's one of the reasons that while regulators have been uh, somewhat skeptical of what's happening out with the public crypto assets and ICOs recently, um, they're, they're really uh, interested in how blockchain technology could be used uh, within financial markets to provide real-time transparency into systemic risk. Absolutely. In the past, they've had to go to various counterparties and get information from disparate sources and compile it together, and that ne necessitates a lag in, in insight. But instead, you don't have to get everyone to contribute information to a centralized source in order to do that regulatory reporting. They can access a, a decentralized source, but still get the same kind of, of single point of reporting. And that's, that's really compelling for them. So one other thing that you've touched on a few times is privacy, and you talked about how that's a priority in financial services. I know you guys are building on the Ethereum source code, and there's been some issues, I think, on scaling Ethereum with privacy functionality built in. So how are you managing that at JPMorgan Chase? Sure. So... Privacy is a, it's a non-trivial technical challenge, right? I mean, within public Ethereum, you have uh, anonymous participants, or at least pseudonymous participants, but a visible transaction history, a visible log of these state changes. And that's standard public blockchain parlance. Uh, it works great for, for public blockchains. It does not work so great for not just financial institutions, but really any business that, that has a, an obligation to keep customer data private. 
And so what the challenge that we were trying to solve initially was, could we create a permissioned network where you have known participants, but where the, uh, the information on the network remains private? So in the first challenge was around private smart contracts and, and the, the piece within Quorum that provides that privacy is called Constellation. It's, uh, it's a way to address smart contracts around the network by simply addressing a smart contract to the public key of another node on the network, just like you would address an email, basically. That means that those smart contracts are held off the chain. Uh, the main change that we uh, that we implemented to the Go Ethereum client is what's called a pri private state try. So in addition to the public state try that, that um, underpins the, the shared blockchain, now whenever you issue a, a private smart contract, it's added to this your private state try. So that, that works great for addressing uh, just smart contracts, but we realized in doing that that unless you were to architect your application in very specific ways, you basically, you, you're likely to lose the concept of mass preservation that you would have um, on a public blockchain. And so we worked with uh, the folks from the Zcash company to take some of the technology that underpins uh, Zcash itself out in the public marketplace, which they're using to make, you know, a, a fungible version of Bitcoin, if you, if you ask them what their kind of goal is there. And uh, we took the privacy technology and we created essentially um, cryptographically shielded ERC-20 tokens that sit on the shared uh, Quorum Ethereum blockchain. So it gives you, it, it really takes both pieces to create this hybrid privacy model. Um, and that means that you can have your business logic private in private smart contracts, which is important to businesses, but they're very quickly executed. It's very fast. And then when you need to really move an asset from person A to person B or, you know, wallet A to wallet B, then you call out to actually move this shielded token from one place to another. Um, and that allows us to do some really interesting things, namely um, in the real world, let's say that you had a loan and uh, you might have a private smart contract that originates that loan. You don't want the world to know that the loan exists. It's not really anybody else's business uh, who's created that loan. Um, but you can have that private smart contract issue those shielded tokens and then um, you, you know move around their ownership on, on the shared chain. When you sell forward a piece of a loan, it's very important that the last person that sold it doesn't know who the new person is. Um, the, the provenance that's really such a benefit or that people... Uh, like on the public chain, um, actually, it, it really just doesn't work for the way that private uh, business works. Yeah. And just to reference earlier, when you were talking about how the Zcash Foundation is working on what they call the fungible Bitcoin, mm -hmm. it's because obviously with Bitcoins, you can see what uh, activity has been done with them before. And so uh, if some are tainted by like illicit activity, then that is what makes, you know, some not as uh pristine or as wanted as others. Um, so we're going to talk more about privacy and also get into some other issues. But first, a quick word from one of our fabulous sponsors, Preciate. Founded by Ed Stevens, Preciate is building the most valuable relationships on earth. Today, Preciate is recognizing an individual for achievements in the crypto space. Jalak Jogunputra is the founder of Future Perfect Ventures, a startup investment group. Jalak recently has been very active promoting the advancement of women in crypto. Her above and beyond effort is worth a shout out. Thanks, Jalak. Listeners, if you know someone in crypto who should be recognized, take action and go to preciate.org slash recognize. That's preciate.org slash recognize. This special South by Southwest episode of Unconfirmed is also brought to you by Quantstamp. 
Founded in the aftermath of the DAO hack, Quantstamp is building the first smart contract security auditing protocol designed to secure all smart contracts in a cost-effective and scalable manner. Relying on humans to audit smart contracts is expensive and error-prone, and with the exploding growth of smart contracts, that solution won't scale. The team at Quantstamp is developing a solution to audit smart contracts on the Ethereum network in an automated and decentralized way that can scale with growing demand. Being built by a team of PhDs who collectively have over 500 Google Scholar citations, Quantstamp is paving the way for safer and more reliable smart contracts that will power the decentralized world. To learn more or request an audit, visit quantstamp.com. I'm talking with Amber Baldet, the blockchain program lead at JP Morgan Chase. So one of their privacy issues I wanted to ask you about was GDPR. Some people are saying this is, so this is the new uh, EU privacy law. And some people are saying that this uh, could be on a collision course with blockchain technology. Um, and just to explain more for the listeners, I think that is um, the one where people talk about the right to be, quote unquote be forgotten, which obviously if you have a blockchain that's immutable, then the data could be there forever. So what is GDPR? Why do you think it might conflict with blockchains? Sure, the GDPR um, challenges, I think we've been thinking about them uh, in at, in doing blockchain uh, architecture for at least two years. It's not like these things are coming as a surprise, probably longer than that, but it's, it's really a challenge. But in architecting uh, your system, for example, there's other precedents, something like in-country uh, storage of data laws uh, within financial services that already place limits around how you're able to transmit encrypted data around the world. And those kind of requirements informed some of the ways that we were initially designing Quorum, such that you're you're only transmitting that encrypted data point to point um, and storing it privately off, quote unquote, off chain, although committing some sort of hash of, of that encrypted blob to the shared chain. So you have this kind of veracity of information, but not actually putting it on chain. And I think really that's the that's the answer is you just you don't put encrypted data on chain. You don't put personally identifiable information on chain. It's probably, I, I often get asked, in fact, this, just at the South by Southwest panel, you know, someone had asked about quantum computing and de-anonymizing all the information on the blockchain. And, and Brian and I were going back and forth about saying, which is going to be more difficult, satisfying GDPR or quantum computing or quantum resistant um, computing. And uh, I think it might be GDPR, but that's, that's partially because... Um, I mean, if you just understand how the internet works, it's really impossible to verify that anything has not ever been, uh, you know, a network sniffed on its way to its final destination or that a website isn't mirrored. I mean, I'm sure we're all familiar with the Wayback Machine and, and that once data is out there, it's out there. So, um, I think that, uh, regulation like GDPR is relying on this idea that you can go to some central owner and just say, wipe this. And you, you hope for the best that they're, when they delete it, it's that the primary record is somehow gone forever. But that's not necessarily the reality of how the internet works today. And blockchain seems to have a target on its back simply because uh, the information might be more decentralized. But it's just a, a further impetus to, to focus on credible privacy technology and change ultimately the way that we that that application creators collect personally identifiable information or PII in the first place. If you don't collect it, it can't be exposed. 
And we have these data hungry, uh, applications right now, whether it's because we're just collecting data for better user customization, quote unquote, or because we're training machine learning models, or there's just, there's always historically been this, this trend towards just centralized data aggregation and get the data now and we'll figure out whether or not we can use it later. Uh, and maybe this will, uh, change the way that people design applications that, that, that might not be a bad thing. There's so much more to discuss there, but um, we're actually running out of time. And I want to ask you one last thing before we go, which is, as you heard, today's ad spot appreciation was for Jalak Shobhan Petra. She actually was on the podcast earlier talking about her diversity initiative, The Collective Future. And I know you joined it. And I just wanted to get your take on, you know, the diversity that we are seeing or not seeing in the crypto space and why you decided to join. The, you know, the... It's the diversity in the crypto space, I think, is um, it's not bad. Um, It's probably on par with uh, other kind of web and technology and information security communities that I've been in over the years. So it's not particularly worse than those. I don't think it's particularly better either. The idea that I think the 5% number that gets thrown around occasionally, I think that's that's just not accurate. I think that um, there's been some debunking of that, that, that it's pulled from Google Analytics. And oddly, this is like a data science problem that if you research things like Bitcoin or like cryptocurrency, that uh, that you will be labeled as masculine and therefore it's a self-perpetuating kind of Ouroboros of, of data that's not really true. But I, you know, it looks like about the same kind of 20 to 30% that you see in general technical spaces. There should certainly be more. Uh, that's one of the reasons that we all kind of got together and said, what is it that in a concrete way that we can do, what can we do to uh, add to the pipeline and change that going forward and just keep the focus on doing better? I don't think it's just about women. Um, it's certainly about raising uh, intersectional awareness amongst all kind of underrepresented populations. But if we're rebuilding this concept of the internet, one thing that I harp on is like, what could we have done better around security? If we knew now about how the internet evolved, if we, over the last 30 years, what would we do different this time around? Um, we can say the same thing about diversity. If we're rebuilding fundamental identity systems and the way we treat metadata, it's not just about being warm and fuzzy and inclusive. It's about making sure that the systems work for the people that use them. And um, we want to support all these social good projects, but maybe the, the most socially beneficial thing that we can do is just make our technology more human. Great. Well, it's been so fabulous having you on the show. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby and Fractal Recording. Thanks for listening.